You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we're looking together at chapter 3. We continue in these seven letters to the churches, and we're going to be reading together verses 7 through 13. You'll find this on page 1029 of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the letter to the church at Philadelphia is, the only, is only one of two letters that are positive. Ephesus was the lagging church. Smyrna was the little church. Pergamum was the lax church. Thyatira was the libertine church. Sardis was the lifeless church. And if we continue with the L words, Philadelphia may be aptly described as the loving church. Here in Philadelphia, the church may have to be described as such because of what the Lord Jesus says about their congregation. The city was situated 30 miles southeast of Sardis along the Hermas River. It was in the western region of Asia Minor and not too far from the Aegean Sea. As an important commercial thoroughfare, it was linked with Smyrna to the west. And it was Attalus II that founded this city and named it in honor of his own fidelity to his older brother, Eumenes. You see, the Romans had urged him to overthrow Eumenes II, but Attalus refused because he was faithful to his brother. And so the city was named Philadelphia after Philadelphus. It was designed to be the center for the spread of the Greek language and culture, and for generations, 
the church in Philadelphia remained a bastion of orthodoxy. It was lacking in worldly endowments, but it was rich in heavenly devotion. And long after the country succumbed to Muslim control, this city held out until 1392 AD. Even the historian Edward Gibbon, who was no friend to Christianity, admired its fortitude. And so we have the title of Christ. First of all, he is the Holy One, sacred, set apart, morally blameless, and absolutely pure. As man, Jesus was free from original sin and without any actual transgression whatsoever. His teaching was pure and holy. All of his works were clean and untainted. But it was not only in his humanity, but it was in his deity that he was the Holy One. The title, of course, is drawn from the Old Testament where it is often used to describe Yahweh. Let me give you one example in Isaiah 43, 25, 43, 15, excuse me. God himself says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Even a cursory reading of Scripture shows that God will not tolerate usurpers. To whom then will you compare me, he says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And yet in this letter to Philadelphia, Jesus places himself apparently on a par with Yahweh. For indeed, God alone is the one and only being who is intrinsically holy. Hosea 11.9, he says, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And so to encourage the Philadelphian believers, Christ here is making a claim to deity. As God, Jesus is equally glorious with his Father in the splendor of holiness. And hence, he put the question to his disciples. Do you remember? He said, who do you say that I am? And note, he doesn't ask there, what do you believe? He asks the disciples, what are you willing to say? Who do you say that I am? Because belief is not enough when you're given the opportunity to confess him. It's expected of those who sat long under the gospel ministry to stand up and confess. Who is he? What kind of person is he? Is he precious? Do you treasure him? The second vow of our membership vows is this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? And you stand and say, I do. He's the Holy One. But he's also, according to this, the true one. He is both true and he is genuine. He is indeed truth itself. And as the great prophet, he not only is holy in nature, but he's true in his word. Matthew tells us about the impact of our Lord's teaching on the multitude. And this is what he writes. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He's the one who reveals the will of God to the church, and he is the one who is worthy of our trust. He speaks truth, and on whatever he says, you and I can rely as true. 
Just as the officers answered when they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Neither Moses, nor Samuel, nor David, nor John. Christ is the prophet. He is true in the discharge of his office and the truth of all the Old Testament types and shadows. And in claiming to be the true one, he once again draws on the Old Testament to make a claim of deity. The ancient prophets considered truth to be an attribute of God, as you probably know. Jeremiah 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And Paul picks up on this thread and he weaves it into his letter to the Thessalonians and he writes, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Bible sets forth clear warnings about describing other than what God is due. Isaiah 46, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What's going on here? These are titles for God and yet Jesus is describing himself with these very things. And the false Jews will be made to recognize that the Christians are true Jews. It's incredible. Either Jesus is usurping divine prerogatives or he is declaring the truth. And since he is the true one, I believe he's telling us what is true. How encouraging must this have been to the little Philadelphian flock? They have little power, according to verse 8. Philadelphia heavily influenced by these false Jews who will be made to recognize the Christians as the true Jews. And Jesus says, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they'll learn that I've loved you. And I'm sure that it was a great comfort to this small church striving for holiness and truth. But notice as well, the third thing that's said about him. He is the one who has the key of David. In other words, he's like a steward under whose authority is the palace. A steward in the Old Testament had authority to give access to people and authority to exclude people from the palace of the king. In other words, he had controlled all access to the throne. No one could gain entrance to the palace apart from his authority. And Isaiah foresaw the replacement of a false steward by one who was worthy of trust in chapter 22 of his prophecy. Shebna, he says, will be removed from office. In that day, I'll call my servant Eliakim, and I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Sound familiar? Eliakim was a steward who foreshadowed the Lord Jesus as the way to God. Christ is holy, he is true, he is absolutely sovereign over the kingdom of God. He is a faithful steward to whom is given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and again, he's trustworthy. So nobody can approach the Father apart from him, and he alone gives access, which is what he teaches Remember when Thomas asked the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And what did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Without his consent, without his mediation, without his blood, nobody can be accepted before the throne of grace. And what comfort was this truth to the beleaguered Christians in Philadelphia? The false Jews boasted of a pedigree. They asserted their right to the inheritance. They scoffed at the Philadelphian believers as being utterly irrelevant, just like the world scoffs today. And yet the false Jews, were told, comprised the synagogue of Satan, and they actually had no heavenly birthright. The inheritance actually is enjoyed only by those who inherit it through Christ. But then finally, his title concludes with this. It says that Jesus is the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And of course, this fourth description in the title of this letter describes his judgment, which nobody can overrule. He opens the scripture to our minds. He opens the gospel to our souls. He opens the church to sinners, and he opens heaven to believers. And also the authority to shut the Bible if he so desires, to lock the gospel if he wishes, to close the church, and to fasten shut heaven. Indeed, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and from his wise and just judgment there will be no appeal. It's absolutely final. And once he shuts that door of opportunity, all the forces in heaven and earth and in hell itself can't pry that door open. The foolish virgins who did not prepare and did not trust in him never gained entrance. There's no place in scripture that says they ever got in. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So how important is it for you and me to be ready for Christ by making preparation? If you're not a Christian, there is one thing for you to do. Receive Christ. If you are a Christian, then you can look to him and renounce the world and guard your heart and oppose sin and look forward to that day of judgment. It's a day of great rejoicing. You will never regret making preparations for an eternity in heaven. So that's the title of the Lord Jesus, but then it moves on to the condition of the church. And he who is holy and true and sovereign and has all authority looks at the church and he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And Christ's omniscience here is plain. He knows everything and nothing escapes his notice. He places before them an open door, which is simply this, repent and believe the gospel. It's open. The way to enter the kingdom is simply to repent of all known sin and to believe in Christ. And the terms are as simple as that. Even a child can understand it. 
And nobody can shut that glorious entry open by Jesus himself. As much as the devil would like to close it, the Almighty keeps it open. And the Lord Jesus opened wide the door of grace to anybody who will come. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Not just to the church in general, see you, uh, notice. This is to every particular believer. And considering our guilt and our corruption, he has reason to cast us out. By nature, you know as well as I do that we are hideous and loathsome in his divine sight. But he loves us. Go figure. And he assures us that he'll never cast us out. He will welcome us. Far from casting us out, he'll give us eternal life, bestow upon us everlasting glory. And this will be true of anybody and everybody who comes to him in faith. But of course, the day is coming when the door of salvation will be forever shut. The bridegroom will come for his bride, and he will take her to the wedding feast. And at that point, we're taught history will conclude, the door will be shut, and the invitation will be withdrawn. Are you familiar with the description of the final judgment that closes out Matthew 25? I'm sure you are. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those who refuse to accept the free offer of salvation will be shut out forever. My mind cannot get around what that means. Forever. Never having a shred of hope. They will spend eternity in that place where we're told there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And therefore, Paul tells the Corinthians, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And today the offer is made. And who knows, it can be withdrawn tomorrow. Seasons of grace tend to be short. They're very uncertain. Once they pass by, it's gone. And the stakes are high. It's nothing less than the eternal destiny that hangs in the balance. And how you and I respond to the offer of salvation will make or will break your future. As I said, the Philadelphian church was one of only two that were not rebuked by the Lord in these seven letters. And in the eyes of Christ, this little congregation was admirable and praiseworthy. He says this, you have little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They were adhering tenaciously to the gospel of Christ and testifying faithfully to his lordship. 
didn't matter how small they were. The Jewish Nationalist Party opposed them, hated them, harassed them. And though they were tempted to quit, and I can only imagine how many times they were tempted to give it in. They kept his word and they confessed Christ and they remained steadfast. So that although they were irrelevant in the eyes of the world, this church was esteemed in the eyes of Christ. It had but little power. Yet they would exercise a mighty influence. We're talking about them tonight. 2,000 years later. According to God, his power is made perfect in weakness. And the devil himself is unable to thwart his efforts. They cannot silence the gospel. He can't. There will be eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace and mouths to confess Christ as the Savior. And even among the false Jews who fiercely opposed the gospel, there might be spiritual fruit. Look what it says, verse 9. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, they lie, Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you. And as these Christians patiently endured, these enemies would be humbled, and might I add, converted? Who knows? The believers themselves were told would be spared the judgment that would be meted out upon the earth. On the earth. I'm coming soon, says Jesus. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown, cling doggedly to the faith, hold fast to your zeal for Christ and your love for him. Don't let go, whatever the cost. You don't want to lose your crown. It's not doing great works. It's holding fast. Those who love the Lord Jesus and persevere under trial, will never lose that glorious crown of life. So you have the title of Christ and the condition of the church, and it closes with the promise of God. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, he says. And here he promises the believer, the lowly, humble, tenacious believer, a lasting place in the household of God. And you and I both know that a pillar is something that's intended to be permanent. It's a symbol of strength and stability. And this was something with which the Philadelphians were very familiar. In 17 AD, they had an earthquake and everything was shattered and broken down except for the huge stone columns that had been left standing. And like the pillars which the earthquake did not destroy, so he's telling the Philadelphians, you can stand strong. The sincere Christian will be like a permanent fixture in the palace of the king. We will receive that one thing for which David fervently prayed. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And here we find David longing for the constant, uninterrupted communion with God in his own courts. And Jesus pledged to make us secure in his kingdom from which we cannot be expelled. 
as strong, lasting pillars. We abide forever and we see his beauty. And he adds proportion. And never unto the far reaches of eternity will heavenly positions ever be threatened. Christ makes our sure, our standing sure in his kingdom, and it's absolutely certain. Paul says it in this way. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Harry Reader is a pillar in God's temple. He's dead. His body's dead. He's alive. Christ promises to write upon each believer a glorious threefold name. On each pillar will be inscribed the name of God whom we served and for whom we suffered. Also will be the name of the church for which we prayed, in which we grew, with whom we worshipped. And also the name of Christ, the Redeemer, for whose glory we lived and by whose grace we died. And we will inherit all the blessings of the coming age and share joyfully in the privilege of sonship. And this must have again heartened those with little power and modest influence. And it amazes me what Christ can make of any individual life. Doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you can or can't do. Like pillars, he'll engrave his name upon you. And so Paul says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so, my friends, as we conclude this, all I can say is that the exhortation echoes, hold fast. In the name of Christ and by the power of his spirit under the blessing of God, hold fast. Be like those who, hearing the word, held it fast with an honest and good heart. We have every reason to remain steadfast to the end without giving up. The faithfulness of Jesus and the magnitude of the rewards should excite and encourage us. Let us hold fast, says the apostle, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. On the 4th of July, 1952, 34-year-old Florence Chadwick waded into the water of Catalina Island intent I'm becoming the first woman ever to swim the 21 miles to California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. The water that day was numbing cold. The fog was so thick that she could hardly see the boats that were meant to scare away the sharks. As the hours ticked away, fatigue was not a problem but the bone-chilling cold of the water was threatening. After 15 hours, 15 hours of swimming, she couldn't go on and asked to be taken out. Her mother and trainer urged her to keep on since they were getting close to the shore, but all Chadwick could see was dense fog. Later, she learned that she had been within a half mile of the shore And she blurted out, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the shore, I might have made it. Don't lose sight of the truth of Christ. Embrace the truths, fulfill the duties, 
Devote yourself to worship. And as Matthew Henry says, do this without wavering, without doubting, without disputing, and without dallying with temptation. And to meet the deepest needs of our souls, let's appeal to Christ as our King. One cannot possibly believe in Jesus Christ without his perfections exerting a mighty influence on your life. Do you struggle with impurity and in corruption, wickedness and resentment? Go to the Holy One. Do you wrestle with error, lies, gossip, or dishonesty? Go to Jesus as the true one. Are you burdened with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of danger? Go to Jesus as the one who has the key of David. Do you have doubts? Do you feel weak? Do you lack assurance? Go to the one who's able to open and nobody can shut, and shut and nobody can open. And pray for the Spirit's influence to grant you the abiding joy of the Lord and draw comfort from the revelation of Jesus who reigns supreme over all things. For those with little strength, he is holy, true, sovereign, and authoritative. He is all that he is as high priest for our sake, exalted above the heavens. And if you are a Christian, let me encourage you tonight that you are an heir of the kingdom sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and your salvation has been accomplished, your future is bright, and your eternal life is secure. May that encourage this little church this evening. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.